You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Oneofus.net and all of the shows on it are 100% subscriber supported. Please consider becoming a subscriber to oneofus.net. Keep the site and all of our great shows going and get some terrific bonus content as well. is back digital noise digital noise digital noise, digital noise. <laughs> i'm here with aaron the, <laughs> the madman woodle call <laughs> <laughs> back it's like when i first met this guy he was so sweet and innocent and then after scads of really disturbing distressing films i've made him watch he's now aaron the madman yeah woodle. i still know what broke me don't make me go into it it's all your fault what too. movie broke you uh red christmas uh was that the one that, that was, was the just one like, it man- broke me like it broke my cherry I was an innocent, sweet guy until that happened, and then I'm like, fuck everything and everyone now. <laughs> and now you're the, the, the beautiful work of art that is man. Yes, I am the beautiful butterfly that is not Aaron. And well, we have a lot of movies to talk about, so let's just jump right into it with our first one this week, which is the Criterion release of Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Man, I gotta tell you, I was so psyched to get a copy of this thing. I was too, because I saw this a long time ago, and I did not like it. Okay. Um, I was really put off by the fact that it it was not just about what it was about on a larger scale. It was also about an individual who is deeply troubled and has real emotional issues with anger and control. And when it started getting into the self-destructive stuff that Hedwig does in the last kind of act of the movie, I was like, I, nope, and turned off. And... Oh my god, did I love the shit out of this movie this oh, time. Oh, good, I'm glad. Yeah, yeah, no. That was last time, when I was younger and unable to accept complex individuals. <laughs> sure, and he is complex, played by John Cameron Mitchell, who also wrote and directed this thing, adapted from his own off-off-Broadway musical, which ran successfully for a very surprising amount of years. In fact, as you see some, some of the bonus features on here, it became this sort of, like, open secret, secret in New York, where, like, the biggest celebrities in New York were showing up to see this thing. Some, some of them multiple times. I think at one point they said, I think it was, was uh, it Meryl Streep who was going, you were telling me, I think it was Glenn Close. They Glenn said Close. was there okay. for every night for like three months or something. <laughs> she just saw it over and over and over again. But, um, and what they'd be like, but don't get carried away. And the nights there was no celebrity there, there'd be like seven people in the yeah. audience. <laughs> we sold out on the celebrity nights. But the story follows Hansel Schmidt, who eventually becomes Hedwig, lives in East Germany, uh, very effeminate. Um, and he meets a American sergeant, Luther Robinson, who basically brings him into the world of, of like, you know, being a homosexual, as it were. It was like, I want to marry you and I'll bring you out of Germany, but you have to actually get a sex change uh, because I, my family would never accept. What was it? I thought it was the American government. Like, so the movie is kind of surreal. It's right. very much a musical. And so there were portions of it where I kind of gave up trying to really understand. And I put this in quotes, the plot. 
and just kind of gave in to the metaphorical aspect right. of the movie, and that was one. Well, let me, let me keep going with the plot as much as I can here, anyway. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and you're right. It was the government. who's like, to get married, he has to go a full physical examination, which means he has to actually have a vagina. Yeah. Um, but the uh, operation is botched, and as he says in the one of the big songs in here, all <laughs> he was left was a angry one-inch one piece of skin. Yes. <laughs> the angry inch, as which, it which were. Which may or may not be part of the title. Yeah. <laughs> but... This isn't even when we first meet him. We hear about all this stuff in retrospect, uh, or her, I should say, her. Uh, where um, she, like Luther's long since gone, a Hedwig fl- had a moment where it looked like she, she was going to be very successful. She, she basically seduced and teamed up with this young kid who became Tommy Gnosis, uh, who basically took all the songs they wrote together and decided to become Nine Inch Nails become, all on his own. Uh, 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 goth. Christian Nine Inch Nails. Yeah, goth Christian Nine Inch Nails who becomes this mega superstar. Uh, and meanwhile, Hedwig is left So is forgotten. he just like Creed? Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's just left with no one giving a shit, playing like like breakfast buffets. Which is pretty much the story of her life, unfortunately. Right, being abandoned consistently. Yeah. And it's sort of like her dealing with the anger of all these things and these songs that are always about the story of her life as they go from crazy place to crazy place that no band would ever normally play at. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like a Arthur Denise. Treacher's Fish and Chips. <laughs> yeah, there are all these great sequences where she's singing her music, which the songs are fantastic. Oh, so good. And the camera's just panning across the room and it's like a long john silvers with her and a little amp walking around the room talking on her mic yes uh and lots of like cool design stuff they do where like rooms open up art in a very theater on stage sort of way and yeah. uh cool animation sequences the, the the big song here is probably the origin of love uh based on uh aristophanes speech in plato's symposium about in the myth, uh, human beings were once one round, two-faced, four-armed, and four-legged being, uh, but the angry gods split them in two, leaving them yearning for their whole life for their, their opposite. Uh, and it's a really cool, beautiful sequence. It moves me to tears every time uh, I watch agreed. it in the film. Uh, I, I'm not going to lie. I've been listening to the music since I've oh, watched this. because it's so good. Constantly. But there's a, a solid cast of people who are mainly sort of the, theatrical stars, um, more theater sto- stars more than film stars, like Miriam Shore, who plays the uh, gender-swapped, um, like, sort of second in the band, who's playing a man, but is very clearly a woman. Yeah. <laughs> I was never quite sure if it was supposed to be a woman who was going through gender identity issues or specifically a man, because there's even a bit later on with a, a turn when the movie goes full metaphorical. And if you listen to the commentary, uh, what's his name? I just blanked on it. John Cameron Mitchell. Yeah. He actually talks about the fact that there's a large debate among fans over whether or not it is a man becoming an actual woman or a man, uh, her becoming a drag queen. It's just right. Cause she's, it's a female actress playing a man with got facial hair and everything, but she, uh, he fascinates about becoming Hedwig who tries on her wigs yeah. when she's not around and stuff. So it's a very sort of like, like Russian nesting doll of gender going yeah. on in that character alone. But I mean, I think, I think ultimately he was like, it's definitely, it was written as a man originally. And then it was kind of like, 
is there any reason a woman can't play the role? Oh, okay. You know? Why not? That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, Andrea Martin plays the role, uh, who, who was like earliest, like SCTV star. She plays the, the role of, uh, Hedwig's manager. Michael Pitt is Tommy Gnosis. And there's a few other familiar faces, but ultimately the star of this film is John Cameron Mitchell, who, who hit the ground running with his film, uh, career as a writer director, uh, with this really incredibly memorable cult music, rock That's musical. Amazing job. Yeah. And really like, uh, I know of three films that he's made. I adore two of them and can't stand the other. So he has a pretty good track record, all things. I have not seen all of his films, but we adore the same two. Yes. (laughs) Um, But there's this is Criterion. It's got a lovely brand new cover design for this. A 54 page illustrated booklet with just a a great essay by critic Stephanie Zakarek um, and lots of production photos. Uh, with illustrations for it, stuff from the costume designer, uh, the actual excerpts from Plato's Symposium that the song is about, <laughs> and then from another big theme in here, the Gospel of Thomas, they include that in there as well. It's a, it's a pretty big booklet. It, it, it also has a commentary by John Cameron Mitchell. Did I get the name right? I got John the name Cameron right. Mitchell, um, yes. Which is really interesting because they... It's different from a lot of commentaries because he had to wear so many hats since this was an indie film. And wigs. He <laughs> he he goes a lot into both what what different elements mean, but also a lot of the practical applications. Like he talks about uh, in the final show-stopping number, they wanted this big theatrical thing, but they couldn't afford that many extras, and so they had to figure out how to shoot this like epic sequence in a room the size of your living room, and mm-hmm. how it was all set design, and what they did to achieve that. And there's a lot of archival material, including that which is on a previous edition. The new stuff we have here is there's a really cool a Hedwig reunion with John Cameron Mitchell, the cinematographer Frank G. DeMarco, the composers of the song, Stephen Trask, and other pe- other people, including a few of the stars of the film, just getting together and talking uh, in this, this year uh, for an hour about what they remember about the film and the whole experience. And it's really a fun, charming discussion that brings up lots of stuff that's not on a lot of the other bonus features. There's also a new program for 30 Minutes called The Music of Hedwig, where where music critic David Frick and the composer Stephen Trask talk about the soundtrack for it. But like I said, all the other stuff in here, including a 86-minute archival documentary of the making of, deleted scenes, what have you, is all here. So this is a really solid Criterion package. And if you are a fan of Hedwig, this is decidedly the best edition of this movie that exists. And even if you aren't a fan, check it out. Like, I was really surprised with how much I enjoyed this movie. And even though... I'll admit, in the last act, there are some things that I don't understand from a storytelling standpoint. Uh Like, I want to go online and Google one of those videos of what does this mean kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's still impactful and powerful and really emotional to watch. Oh, totally. Um, And you won't be able to get the songs out of your head. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of those rare movies that has uh, crested the honor of, I'm going to track this down and own it afterwards. Cool. Yeah. I'm glad I turned you on to it then, even though you had seen it before and thought you didn't like yeah, it. Yeah. You were wrong. <laughs> Young Aaron was mistaken. As he often was. I often always say to people, if there's ever a movie that you just is is just overwhelmingly thought of as being really good, but you didn't resonate with you or maybe you even actively disliked it. Come back to it again in five, ten years, yep. because I can't count how many movies, like, upon doing that, have gone, why? Why, do you, why did I not like this the last time I saw uh, this? A couple of my favorite movies of all time, I despised when I first saw them. And it was only after I finally was like, okay, fine, I'll try it again, that I started really understanding how good they were. Yeah. 
a lot of stuff like that for me. Uh, hell, sometimes just seeing stuff the second time, period. Like, I didn't like Fight Club the first time I saw it. Really? M- Martin Thomas forced me to go back in the theater and see it again, <laughs> and then I liked it the second time. Of course, now everyone's like, it's too problematic. I'm like, I think one of the things I always go about that movie is like, I, isn't it about the fact that it's problematic? Yeah, I, I disagree, but, but we're not talking about Fight Club. Yeah, we're that, not. That, that is its own conversation. What we're talking about next, uh, the Arrow re-release of a 1981 film called The Loveless, which features most notably the first leading man role for young William Defoe, which who... And uh, William Defoe's magnificent ass. That's the thing, man. <laughs> Like, Willem Dafoe is not generally thought of as, like, a really sexy actor. He's got a weird face. But, man, when he's in his early 20s, he's a pretty good-looking guy. And, yeah. and I think I liked this movie a fair bit more than you did, actually. I, yeah, I found it kind of dull. It's Catherine Bigelow wrote and directed this. It's kind of a arty... She, she co-wrote and directed because there are two people listed right, in the screen credits. You are correct. Monty Montgomery is the other person. Because th- this doesn't feel like a Catherine Begelow movie. Not at th- all. Th- this feels like... I-, I messaged you about it. because I- So I watched this on the plane with my sleeping son on one side and my sleeping wife and baby on the other. And it reminds me of the lost Jim Jarmusch movie that he made before any of the others. I mean... Because, like, it's... It's very slow. It's, it's very methodical. <laughs> there isn't really a narrative per se. I would argue that the but, difference is, is that Jarmusch's film films have really memorable and likably weird characters. And this has, with the exception of Defoe, not terribly memorable so, and not likable characters in it. I kind of got into the meta story of the movie. And, and this is entirely at the fault of... Well, that means you have to tell a plot. Yeah. Well, there's a plot. Um, so, uh, the plot is, for what it is, uh, Willem Dafoe is part of a biker gang who are traveling to Florida for the Daytona 500. I guess. I, is it I maybe don't in Florida? No, I don't know. It's irrelevant. Yeah, I'm frankly. sorry for whoever out there knows where it is. They're going there. Um, and so, after a brief interlude where he helps fix a woman's tire and then kind of sexually assaults her a little bit, um, he and the rest of his biker gang end up in a town. One of their bikes is broken. And they have to fix it, which is going to take a couple of days. So basically, they're stuck in this town for a couple of days. And the movie is is this very slice of life about those couple of days. And there's, I mean, there's more details in there. There's a woman who Willem Dafoe kind of latches onto, who likes him. There's a plot line involving a town person who is kind of intrigued by their life, as well as a couple of the bikers like they're actually a couple and their relationship but but ultimately the movie isn't so much about the plot it's really just about watching this play out and some degree of like who is the bad guy in this movie? so well, <laughs> so that's what i wanted to get about so and i blame cargill on junk food cinema because he talks a lot about how you look at the nostalgia wave and how right now we're coming out of being nostalgic for the 80s and probably shifting into the 90s. And if you look at the 80s, they were super nostalgic for the 50s. And what this movie feels like is Catherine Bigelow and Monty Montgomery. Monty Montgomery. also apparently worked closely with David Lynch on some of these films. Going, look, sons of bitches, you think the 50s were awesome. This is what it was like. And so it's about these this group of outcasts who are social pariahs, even though, really, except for a couple of things, they 
just kind of show up and exist. But instead, the villainy seems to be this kind of 50s culture. Uh, they're constantly being told they're pieces of shit. Restaurants don't want to serve them. Uh, there's a... It's the wild one done yeah. through a sleazier lens. Well, like, like there's a guy who's clearly molesting his daughter is kind of one of the plot lines that comes yeah, forward. which and comes to a very distasteful, fuck. bleak end. <laughs> but again, if you look at it as that, that meta text of the 50s weren't awesome, we just say it were, say they were. Right. It makes sense because... All that bad stuff comes from the people who are steeped in that culture as it eats itself alive. And all of these outcasts who are saying, fuck you, I'm going to do what I want, are the ones who basically make it through as unscathed as they can. I, I mean, I see all that. I just found the whole that all of that very clunky. I mean, obviously, Lynch did it better with Blue Velvet. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know? the, the other thing they do is the bikers... They, they talk in this very extreme 50s biker greasehead lingo and that is so weird and off-putting for me that 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 killed it a bit it didn't feel like real people it felt like they were caricatures too the one thing i'll say is defoe is indeed magnetic here though you can't take your eyes off him or i guess as you said his ass dude Um, there is one nude scene with him and another character and they're both obscenely beautiful human beings yeah (laughs) and it's it's this like beautiful still shot where they hold it on them for like two or three minutes straight so you can really appreciate their bodies. <laughs> and I was on the airplane just kind of going like, um, making sure wife's not awake. Is anyone watching this? Cause this feels weird for me to watch in a group of like a hundred people. <laughs> <laughs> what are you watching on your laptop? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there's an audio commentary with Monty Montgomery. Uh, there's no friend today making no man's friend today, making the loveless for 34 minutes, which is a brand new piece that interviews uh, a, a large amount of the actors on this, including Will- Willem Dafoe. There's U.S. 17 shooting The Loveless for 15 minutes, which is another new set of interviews with the producers of the film. Chrome and Hot Leather, the look of The Loveless for 15 minutes, featuring new interviews with the production designer and director of photography. There's Relentless for four and a half minutes, which is a new interview with musician Eddie Dixon, who does uh, some of the songs in the score here. Uh, that plays out to stills. It's an audio interview with stills. And then there's a, two image galleries and the theatrical trailer. That's the loveless, which I no love lost for me, but okay. <laughs> uh, next up, we have the dark side of the moon, which is not a concert film for Pink Floyd, despite yep. what you might think. In fact, it's a 1990 direct to video sci-fi horror film that, weirdly has somehow refused to dissipate in the air like a lot of films of its ilk. It kind of has this bizarre little cult following, and you get it when you're watching it. You're like, I see how this... I mean, it predates Event Horizon, and it's totally Event Horizon, right? You're like, holy shit, this is like the same movie as Event Horizon, just done really, like, cheap, but with, like, recognizable character actors throughout it, and you're just like... Yeah, it's uh, the... the guy who played um, the evil corporate head honcho in Blade Runner. This was right. his last movie. Right. Yeah, John Deal, I believe. And I swear to God I've seen this movie before. But as I was watching it, I was like, I, I don't remember any of this, but it all seems so familiar. I very well could have. I mean, it came out in 1990 on VHS. It looks like a film I, I would have grabbed and said, sure, let's check yeah. out this sci-fi horror film. <laughs> um, it's uh, near future... Uh, these people are on a maintenance vehicle who are uh, orbiting the Earth to repair nuclear-armed satellites, 
but there's a total power failure. They can't figure out what's going on. The ship has started. Life support is failing. So they're drifting towards the dark side of the moon, and they find this really old NASA sh- shuttle, the Discovery, which is drifting towards them, although NASA's been out of business for 30 years. And they're like, well, we're out of options. Let's see if we can salvage anything from the ship to help us. They get on board the ship. They find dead bodies. Uh the mission records of their own ship indicate that it was, it had disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle, which, which you know, it's that kind oh of Oh my movie. god. I was, I, I was with this until they started throwing around the Bermuda Triangle. And that's one of those, like, and then, don't do every it. single don't time do they it. mentioned it, it was just like, oh god. But ultimately it ends up with, like I said, an event horizon plot where Satan possess, starts possessing people yeah. and is doing it because it has become time to judge humanity. And, it's actually not terribly handled with the exception of the Bermuda Triangle thing, considering it's like a almost no budget film. Yeah. They do a lot with what they have. The, the visuals are really stellar, actually. Like all the model work they do, and there's a ton of it. It looks good. It immediately reminds you of Alien with the quality of the, the, uh, the models that they use. The actors aren't what I would call it's, good. It's a mixed bag. There's, 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 I mean, no, but some are good. Some are very much not. As, as George Luke, as, as Harrison Ford said, you can write this shit, George, but you yeah. still sure can't say it. <laughs> and, and the movie has this weird decision, which couldn't be more nineties. If it tried to make the computer be a human being, a, of course, hot lady with yeah, that's scantily clad outfits. Totally it, bizarre. In no way is about anything. Yeah. It, Except the ship's AI is it for just, it's no a reason a totally ridiculously hot chick yeah. wearing full makeup in this like stripper outfit. Yeah, full sitting makeup. In a chair. Right. There yeah. was like heavy lipstick. It was, so it was like it's never relevant. It's like okay, <laughs> sure, why not? I mean, she doesn't even walk around. No, she, just she never in the moves chair. out of the chair the whole movie. Yeah. I think it was just so that they could sit and have people have a conversation with someone so it didn't look like they were just talking to a wall. And there's a lot of, like, influence by the thing because it gets into this, oh, how do we know who who you can trust? And that deals with the of some built-in distrust these guys already have for each other or dislike. And it's one of those, I can see why coming out in 1990 this garnered some interest. Yeah. But nowadays, it's an interesting relic. It's, it's okay. It's, yeah. It's, it's an interesting it's like, relic. That's nice. We make <laughs> movies much better than this now. We do. Uh, and uh, But it's interesting for the year that this came out. And fun. This is a fun little extra it had on it. Is it actually had the production budget listed out as like a little viewable document. And it would go through and show like what the above the line cost and all the elements were. The below the line cost. What sets cost. Uh, that was actually kind of interesting and for me. Startling, they spend startlingly they spend a ton of money on a full 4K transfer of this fucking yeah. thing that is really well upgraded. And you're like, man, somebody has like a total hard on for this movie at this and company. I gotta say, it doesn't need it because the movie was not well lit because it was um, it was a cheap movie. Yeah, they couldn't put a lot of light in there, so it's a the very audi- dark movie. Although the audio wasn't great. Was audio just, is kind of okay. scratchy and yeah. yeah. Um, but there's a trio of interviews over Skype with actor Alan yeah. Blumfield for 40 <laughs> minutes, the makeup artist R. Christopher Briggs for 35 minutes, and stuntman Chuck Borden uh, for 21 <laughs> minutes. 
Uh, and there's a commentary track as well. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm never going to watch this again. Yeah, but if you if you like this movie and have memories of it, you're going to enjoy this. Yeah, if it's not. A, yeah, go check out Event Horizon. <laughs> so one I'm c- covering that I did not hand off for, to you because I hadn't gotten it yet is the season one of Titans, which is the first home release from DC's this is, streaming service. That's okay. I saw it. Oh, did you see it? Yes. Okay. Uh, so I didn't know you had DC streaming. Fair enough. Uh, so. I admit, we all know, everybody was shitting all over the trailers for this fucking It's because it was the first trailer that they released with the infamous fuck Batman line. Yeah. Is maybe one of the worst trailers I've ever it's, seen. It's not it's terrible. It does not sell this it, show. All it does is try and sell it as total gray, dark, edgelordy yeah. stuff. And everyone's like, it's the Teen Titans. I mean, we know they go to some darker places, but not really that in that sense. Yeah. You know, but... And then, of course, everybody hated the new design of, um, what's her name? Starfire? Starfire. Yeah, Coriander. Which, uh, played by Annie Diop here, who, like, and at first they try to play it off like, no, 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 it's just this one scene. You're taking a look out of context. No, it's not. She wears a fucking fur coat and a stripper dress the entire series. Honestly, (laughs) the only thing that I found defensively bad was the curly hair. Yeah. Everything else, I was like, I can tolerate this. Well, just it was it's only that the, so the, the, the like pink curly hair on top of all that yeah. was like you look like you're trying to make a a, a a side character in a Shaft film, especially since <laughs> the actress herself. If you look at her uh-huh. in her normal kind of as daily wear as you can get in a, as a celebrity. She pulls it off quite well. Oh, sure. But, like, her hair matches. She looks good. Like, yeah. sh- they could have made her why fit a lot more to the, what the character looked like. Why didn't you just make her look like she normally looks? Because she's a very attractive woman who kind of looks like an African-American starfire. Yeah. <laughs> You're yeah. like, okay. But then they turn her into this weird, like I said, almost like clashing so. character stuff. And I get it. Everyone was like, ugh, the look of this is horrible. Well, here's the good news. When you're actually watching it straight through... There's a lot of really compelling shit in this. I liked the hell out of this. Okay. Uh, there were a couple of elements that I thought was a little iffy. Uh, the the first season is very much Trigon. And yeah, the, which is uh, the, the character only- Raven and her demon father that she doesn't even know she has, who is trying to use her for an entry point into the world to cause the end of the yeah. world. Which, which the only issue with that is that... In recent memory, like in the last five years, we've seen like three different, okay, maybe longer than five, but five to eight years, we've seen like three different adaptations of this plot line. And so... What, in animated shows? Yeah. Like, we've had a a show, a movie, and now this. Okay. And so it's... First live action adaptation we've ever seen of this character. True, but it's like, as someone who watched those other versions, it was like, okay, I'm ready for something new. I'm excited to hear that the second season is moving Mm -hmm. on beyond that. Pretty much everybody in here, except for uh, Robin, have never had a live action translation before. Aside from the fact that they're just doing Trigon again, it's really well done. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're doing it as a straight up horror show. Yeah. You know, and everybody has their total dark shit behind them in their past. You know, even Gar who is the shapeshifter uh, character who can change into any animal who's normally just this total, like, doofus goofball, has, like, this sort of darker past connected to it, like, where he can't break out of being a tiger, well, you know? They have a great bit. So Gar is famously a vegetarian because he's in contact with animals and gets their spirits, right. and there's a bit where he actually bites someone and, like, gets real blood in his mouth and how much that fucks with him emotionally. Like, I... I, like, basically ate someone. What is that doing to me? Yeah. And that's a really cool idea. 
It is, and there, there's a lot of little neat details throughout this. I think Brendan Thwaites, Brenton Thwaites really does pull off Robin on the whole. I would agree. And I think it's helped an awful lot by later in the series, they introduce the next Robin, Jason Todd, who now that Robin has left, Batman's gone ahead and got another Robin, and, and uh, Dick Grayson doesn't know this, so he's kind <laughs> of like, like, oh, I don't want to be Robin anymore, because when I put on the suit, it makes me, I, I, I get connected with this brutal place of anger that I don't want to be that person anymore, and then he sees the new Robin, and you can tell he's totally fucking jelly as shit. <laughs> it's like a great line where he's like, say, what do you do with Batman? He's like, oh, you know, I don't know, we, we hang out, we look for crime, I, I get to drive the Batmobile, and there's a pause, and he goes... He lets you drive the Batmobile? That's <laughs> like, well, that's awesome. They do a good job of exploring, no matter how hard Bruce Wayne slash Batman tries, being in that world at such a young age is going to fuck you up a bit. Yes, and it deals a lot with that. Yeah. And, little, and once again, I think the weakest-handed character in here is Starfire, who, well, unless you count Hawk and Dove, or... God, I, ridiculous characters. I, I anyway, liked I, I liked them in the show, but they're they're side characters. They're they're yeah, not in any they're way supporting characters. characters. Yeah, but I've so always, I don't really care. As superheroes go, I've always found them kind of disposable. Yeah, I'm like okay, let's move along. And, and I, I admit, I, I I may be more inclined to enjoy them because Dove, the the woman, is played by like Lila Garrity from No Minka Kelly. I know, but I call her Lila Garrity. That was her name in um, Friday Night Lights. Oh, so and I never I've always that. liked her because of that. she's like startlingly hot yeah. actress. You're just like, damn. But <laughs> so, but then it's so funny because she's actually a not, not a bad actress at all. She is not. She's very attractive, very charismatic, and the guy Alan Richardson, Richardson playing Hank Hall is just a big Jai Courtney slab of meat <laughs> with, like, no range at all. And you're like, yeah. okay. But anyway, they're kind of irrelevant. I mean, they come into it, but, like, whatever. Uh, I think the young girl, Tegan Croft, they got playing uh, Raven is really good and Agreed. really into it. And they do, like I said, she's the centerpiece of the, uh, she and Robin are really the two big centerpiece characters of the show. But overall, if there's no other reason, none of this, none of us, that we're saying makes this sound compelling to you at all. There's a backdoor pilot for Doom Patrol episode. So if you like Doom Patrol, which you should, because it's the best show on DC streaming and one of the best superhero shows out there, the, basically the first episode for it is actually in Titans, even though there's a different actor yep. playing the chief. <laughs> but like, I'll be honest, I went into this super hesitant. Yeah, sure. Whatever. I watched, like, am I going to watch this type of I, thing? I came out of it. I'm excited for season two. I can't oh, yeah. wait. And like, as much as DC filmic has gotten a lot of bad stuff wrong, and there was some obviously obvious mishandling of Swamp Thing, everything from a narrative standpoint that they've put out on DC streaming, I have thoroughly enjoyed. Yeah, like Titans, Doom Patrol, Swamp Thing is good, even though it's we're not going to get any more of it. Yeah, the Young Justice, unless they put it on uh, HBO Max, which yeah. people are rumoring about already. Like, everything they're putting out has been good to great for me. Yeah, no, I can't I've been, wait for season. I, two. I've enjoyed all three of their shows yeah. for sure, and and Titans uh, should not have worked anywhere near as well as it does. And I think of the three shows, it's the weakest of the three. But it's not like a giant drop-off, either. No. It's yeah. still got really great production quality. It's got really well-shot fight scenes and special effects. On the whole, the acting is pretty good from these young actors. Um, it's got compelling plot lines that are leading into more and more interesting things. I, I'm intrigued to see how they handle season two. Because season one was so very much just, 
everything is Trigon from second one to the very last frame is I'm all assuming, that bad. I'm assuming they're going to introduce Terra in like, season two. Both, I want to see how they respond to the criticism about the look and feel of the characters because they were so far into production, they can't change that shit. Oh know? no, of course. Not. And so, like now they've had a chance to revamp stuff. Now they've had a chance to look at what kind of show they want to make. And I've heard. I mean, that they could easily have Starfire go. They're like, going to touch a bunch of different plots. So, right. like, I'm intrigued to see the show become more Teen Titans and less yeah. Grimdark. They, they they could easily have Starfire show up and like looking totally different. And Robin, like, what happens? Like, I just thought I'd try a different look. Yeah, sure. I'm fine. Well, especially because, and, and this is not a I spoiler. I mean, Warp's head changed every well, season of Next Generation, for God's she sake. She very much has amnesia, and that's a big part of her right. arc in this show. Right. So you could easily just have her be like, and I'm me now. And now I know who I am, and it was not that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I wonder, is it Tara, the character who was like Deathstroke's like, like plant in yeah. the comics? Because they like, in the, in the multitude of pretty decent little EPK features on here that are very specific about different characters and different plot lines in the show, but well worth watching. There's like 13 of them or something on here. Uh, they repeatedly say this is decidedly based on the classic run of Titans, which the centerpiece of was the betrayal of the Titans by and one of their own members, Terra. Want to know what's really funny? Going about my, my only complaint about this is I a rehash of plots. It is Terra. Um, is that Currently, Young Justice has its third season airing, and they've guaranteed a fourth. And I'm admittedly a couple of episodes behind, but right now they are setting up the Terra betrayal of Young Justice instead of the Teen Titans. Right. So we may watch the exact same plot happening in two different shows at the same time. <laughs> That'll be interesting to see two different takes on yeah. it, he said, trying to convince you. Uh, next up, we have a, a DVD-only horror film, Dead Sight. And why is it DVD-only? I mean, it's, it's a really pretty run-of-the-mill zombie film, low-budget zombie film. I mean, I got to tell you, overall, I was like, man, for a very like a zombie film that really only has one gimmick to add to the whole thing, it's very well shot. It's, it's decently acted. It's got like, I mean, honestly, it's a lot slicker and better looking than it probably has any right to be or even needs to be. This is low budget enough that I think they can only really afford at any point to have like maybe two zombies on screen at a time. <laughs> right. It's very Tops. low budget. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So it's, it was, a, yeah, it's not bad. It was decent. But at the same time for anyone who's like, I can't, I don't even want to watch it. I got zombie fatigue. This is not even in any way going to add no. anything. I mean, this is nothing. I go, yeah, but watch this. But if you're one of those people, fuck you. I like zombie movies. It's well worth a watch. Yeah. Uh, the gimmick, as it were, is that our primary character, played by Adam Siebold, wakes up handcuffed to a rail in an ambulance with gauze taped around his eyes, uh, having no idea that the zombie apocalypse has happened. The ambulance is stopped. And he frees himself, mainly not from the handcuffs, but like breaking off the rail, basically. So he's got this big rail, which turns out to be useful to have yeah. attached to your hand. Uh, and starts wandering around and starts to realize how fucked up everything is. Uh, encounters a very pregnant deputy policewoman, who, Liv Collins, who's gotten, uh, basically had her car stolen by an infected survivor who she was trying to help. And they're trying to figure out what the hell do we do next? <laughs> you know, this is not very pregnant, like literally about to give birth policewoman and this guy who can't see anything who is a was be on uh release from jail for surgery <laughs> yeah that was just that was the only thing i missed in the movie they revealed kind of his backstory at one point and i completely got distracted and was like it's, irre what, it's what irrelevant <laughs> it's only there for there to be a moment of stress between him and yeah. the 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 other character being police you know which doesn't really come to anything i mean 
this is a film that felt very, in terms of story, shot out real quick. But they put a lot of care into actually making it. So honestly, like so. if this movie had come out a decade ago, I think it would have been pretty special. I agree. But we have been inundated with so much zombie fare that you really have to do something truly special and unique to stand out anymore. Yeah. And this just doesn't. It doesn't do anything wrong. Yeah. I have no actual complaints about this movie. No, the acting really. is decent. Other than it doesn't have much like, new to add. The story is okay. I was really happy that for having a pregnant woman, as much as having the baby becomes a part of the story, the movie doesn't stop for the climax for her to have the baby like every other movie does with a pregnant woman. Sure. So like, they, they tiptoed around some of those obvious cliches that they were going into but even then like it's it's just okay there's just nothing special about it yeah and really corny covers like dead shot you'll never see them coming <laughs> oh my God. which would make sense if they were like camo zombies or something <laughs> you know they could like they, they camouflage like 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 iguanas or some shit yeah <laughs> um but it's only 82 minutes so quite frankly you're not even it's not long enough to become exhausted. With, yeah, no. You know? if, if you're a fan of zombie movies and for some reason, like you said, you, you haven't gotten burnt out yet somehow, totally worth a watch. So this next one, uh, I completely kowtowed to Aaron. It was my mistake. I did not mean to put this in the stack for him. I had read about this movie. They sent me a record of Sweet Murder online and went... Every review I'm seeing is saying things that sp- speak to the part of me that says, oh, hell no. Um, now, I generally love South Korean horror films, but all oh, this Japanese South Korean horror film. But this is, a, they're all like, yeah, if you just like watching people get tortured for two hours, this is your movie. I was like, no, that does not sound like my thing. And this is from horror critics. So I was like, no. And I had this in the pile of do not take. Uh, and somehow it got swept up into his pile, and this poor bastard had to sit through it. I have no idea what the actual plot is. So, Aaron, Aaron tell us about a record of sweet murder. For the for the first of two times in this show, I'm going to say, Chris, fuck you. Um, <laughs> what was the other time? We, we haven't gotten there yet. We oh, will. Fuck. Okay. Oh, I know what it is. Yeah. All right. So, record of a sweet murder. Uh, first of all, this is a found footage movie. Which I will get to in a moment. Um, and basically, it is about a Japanese woman in South Korea, maybe? Don't uh, a reporter who's there with a cameraman who she got a call from a elementary, primary school classmate of hers who in the recent months has murdered 18 people. And he called her out of the blue and said, hey, I want you to come here. Bring a cameraman. I want you to record this entire thing in one take. <sighs> Which is cool, technically, because they... Sounds cool, like a cool setup. But it's so stupid. Like, it's so obviously a found footage setup. But anyways. And so they go to this location. He shows up with a knife and reveals to them that, no, he hasn't murdered 18 people. He's, in fact, murdered 25. And he, by the way, is bug nuts insane. And God has told him that when he was 27, which he is, if he murders 27 people, this childhood friend of theirs who died in a car crash when they were kids will come back to life as well as the other 27 people he murdered. That is actually true, though. <laughs> so, 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 I mean, I've done it. It works. And we cut out a thing out of the back of a comic from the seventies. I was like, sounded crazy, but man, you never know. So the 
the story is basically them in this small building, their small room, going, I'm going to murder the other two people in front of you, and you are going to record this all in one take, and therefore show that I am not crazy when all of these people come back from the dead. I smell poultry. Because nothing <laughs> says you're, cra- you're not crazy, like demanding that you're not crazy at knife point. By the way, if they do anything wrong, he'll murder them. Of course. Uh, and he'll get his two either way. So, shortly after that, we get into kind of the the clusterfuckiness of this movie. He's kidnapped a couple, and he murders them on screen. And then there's another couple that shows up. He starts insinuating that he can get hints from God, and some of them actually pan out. Like, the couple that show up, he did nothing to get them to go there. He just knew they were going to be there. Um, But the movie doesn't really lean hard into the, yes, I believe what I'm doing, very much because it's a found footage movie, plays out like he's a bug nuts, insane, psychopathic killer. Like, if this were a non-found footage movie from his point of view, showing him getting these hints and showing him wrestling with the idea of, am I crazy? Am I not? I don't know. I hope I'm not. That could be really cool and interesting, but instead the found footage just takes all of that and throws it out the window, and we just get him torturing people. And then it, it gets really sexist for a bit, because in trying to prove that a couple loves each other, his immediate go-to is sexually assaulting the woman and determining how the guy reacts, like, is is whether or not they love each other. And then the couple have sex afterwards? Because women totally are okay with having sex after they've been attempted to be raped. It's a weird fucking movie. The last five minutes is kind of cool, but that's it. And even then, it's not great. It's just like, oh... You kind of paid off your premise a little bit. This should have happened 20 minutes ago, and we should have just lost the whole rape sequence. So it's more of a record of some old bullshit murder yeah. is what you're record saying. of some old bullshit. This Fair movie enough. was garbage. Well, I'm <laughs> sad as hell that I handed it off to you by accident. I swear, people, that was not... I know what you're thinking. I did not intentionally try and make him watch this film. I would never do that. Um, well, except for when I've, I've seen something, too. Yeah. <laughs> Which we'll get to in a moment. I've, I've done those where I go, like, I watch it, it's like, oh, oh, oh. I get all the way through, it's like, oh, i got to hand this off there. <laughs> All right, so next up we have Sticks, which is, once again, not a documentary about the band Sticks or a yes. concert film, <laughs> which makes it a little difficult to find on Amazon, <laughs> because which, there's like 18 Sticks concert documentaries. Which is also, and I want to repeat this for people who are listening to this, not a disaster movie. No. Like, I spent the first three quarters of this movie going, man, you fucked up, now you're going to die, you're going to die, <laughs> and then like, oh no, oh, you this keep is a very different kind of not movie. Not actually you keep waiting for there's going to be a big shark or yeah. a tidal wave or something like that. And that's not what's happening. Even though it starts very much like um, that Redford movie. What is the one? Uh, the, that was the Man in the Sea? No, no, no. Um, no alone? No. Something. But you know yes. what I'm talking about. The, the Robert where Redford out, movie where this, it's him in a boat, the whole yeah, movie. This, that's what I thought woman, this was. Suzanne, Suzanne Wolf's got a yacht. She like really nice yacht. And she's just going out. Sailing the middle of the ocean by herself, as I guess some insane well, she's, people she's, she's a surgeon who is taking her yearly 
I'm going to go on an extreme sailing adventure trip, which she does to cleanse her palate of death and horror and sure. blood that she sees on a daily basis. But unfortunately, she runs into a sinking ship of, of refugees from, I think, I can't remember where they said in I don't Africa. think they ever really say. Somewhere it, Africa. It's, yeah. it's definitely from an African country, yeah. but they intentionally leave out... I think, uh, unless I just missed it, where they're coming from and where they're going to. But so she's calling the, you know, whatever, like, rescue service in the area. And they're like, okay, stay there. We'll help. Do not approach the boat. And she's like, they're literally jumping in the water and trying to come here. It's like, do not let them on your boat. Do not approach them. And despite herself, like, I mean, it's hours and these people are not, nobody's showing up. And finally, she lets this one young boy onto her boat. Who uh, who is dying. Like, she saves him. Yeah, he definitely is about about barely makes it. Yeah, and uh, and then like okay, but I'm getting away from the other boat, getting me a distance because I do not, I, you know, to some degree, I'm like I agree, it would be bad to be rushed by this many people. But I mean, she's a surgeon; her instinct is to help. And I don't want to say too much past that. I mean, it's not this is not a thriller; it's a drama, a character drama, and and it really ends up sort of. Being a film about compassion versus realism versus, I don't know, how shitty the world is. Well, and (laughs) it's also very much about that idea of wanting to help without necessarily having a proper avenue to help the best way. And so, because even once she saves that one kid... It's not like she stops calling. She is calling the Coast Guard like once every couple of hours going, what the fuck? What is going on? Where are you? Yeah. And so, again, despite the fact that the first hour of this movie feels very much like a setup for a disaster at sea movie, it's not that. It's just about having to wait and do nothing in the face of horror. Yeah. And all that being said, this film has a lot of nothing happening in it, but it's so well shot. Uh, this actress, does, Suzanne Wolf, does really carry the film. I mean, unless you're just on your phone the whole time, it's impossible not to feel empathy and, and, and a certain degree of horror at the scenario, but it's never quite investing enough as a film to completely pull you into its yeah. story. You're always at a distance and by the end, it was like, you know, I mean, I'm not going to... This is definitely a movie would have been much better to see in the theater, for Agreed. sure. But as it was, I was like, eh. I mean, I get what you're after. You're not doing anything wrong. But you're also not wildly memorable. So either. I found that movies like this, where you're watching someone basically good at what they do, they can be engaging on an intellectual level. So, like, the first half of this movie is her being a sailor. Yeah. And what it's like to be on your own hundreds of miles from anywhere. And that is interesting to watch. Like, it keeps you invested. And then in the last half, it becomes uh, about both, A, helping the person on the boat, what is she going to do about these people. It never feels inauthentic. And so that authenticity is interesting. It'll, It'll pull you along. But you're right, it never gets you, or at least it never got me emotionally. I was always just like, oh, okay, well then this is going to happen now, kind of thing. Where, it was, it was cool. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know that I would Respect recommend this you're to trying. I don't know that I would recommend this to a lot of people, but it was still an interesting watch if this is the kind of thing that you're into. Yeah. Like, it plays for people who like to watch documentaries. Yes, it does. <laughs> uh, despite not being a documentary. Yeah. Uh, next up we have a film that's for our people. 
which is people who like crazy action movies. Fury, uh, yes. which is a Vietnamese martial arts film, which is definitely not the norm uh, nope. out there, uh, starring uh, Veronica, uh, I don't know, forgive me, NGO, I'm not entirely clear on how that's pronounced, but she's a, a very famous actress and singer and model uh, who often goes by NTV, which yeah. is her initials. She was in The Last Jedi. Uh, she, she was, was uh, Rose's she was sister. The, the one who died in the beginning in the yep. bombing run. So she plays a uh, high who is estranged a, a, a from her family uh, after she had an affair with a gangster. And she's on her own. Her family wants nothing to do with her. She gives birth to her, her daughter, Mai, who now is like a preteen. Um, like way preteen. Not past toddler, she's, not quite preteen. She's nine or ten. Yeah. And she's living in the countryside in a shitty little shack with her daughter. She's working as a debt collector because she's got some badass about her. Yeah. She knows how to kick some ass. And no one likes her. They're all like, because she's a debt collector and that sucks. Yeah. And and even her daughter is given a lot of shit because they kids other kids know who her mom is. Like, well, that sucks. She's a terrible person, so you're a terrible person. But one day, she gets abducted by thugs, and the rest of the movie is a chase of the mom trying to get her daughter back. It's basically the Vietnamese kick-ass chick taken, and <laughs> it's her just going through, and she's not like, she's not playing like a, like a invulnerable martial arts superstar here, like, like Eco Away plays in the raid. She's like, Playing someone who is very good at, at fighting, but is not certainly not like you. You feel scared for her in every fight she's in because she can be seriously hurt and is at points. But nothing will stop her, like some sort of maternal terminator, from getting her daughter back, who it turns out has been sold to organ thieves. <laughs> You're like okay, and it's a series of like very colorful. Into really fascinating looks at the seamy side of uh, Ho Chi Minh City and just the crazy crime and weird culture and just pretty remarkable fight scenes, especially one in particular on a moving train. So I did not like this movie as much as you did, but uh, I will agree with the most for the most part. Like the main actress does a great job. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that fight scene in the last bit of the movie or on the train and actually most of the action in the last half of the movie is pretty darn good to great the the stuff in the first half i think she ended up being a little too uh underclassed for my taste i wanted more of her being tougher but i i don't know how much of that was my expectations versus actually what the movie was giving me like I said, I think part yeah. of it was they wanted to, you, they wanted you to be scared for her. They never, they wanted you to have doubt she was gonna succeed. But, oh my god, this movie was so aggravating to me because every single human being in this movie shits on her throughout the entire film. They did. And there are, like, some of it I get, but like, some of it maybe, it all, Almost had me thinking back to other Vietnam, Vietnamese movies I've seen going like, is this a cultural thing? Like, is this just, is everyone just really shitty to people like this? It's just a Vietnamese Or thing. is this this movie? It's, like, it's the New York City <laughs> um, of, of the, the Orient. And like, <laughs> everyone's just an asshole, but it, it's like when they say, fuck you, it actually means, hey man, how you doing? And it, <laughs> it got to a point where it started to aggravate me because it felt like the movie was actually in favor 
of the people shitting on her and like agreed with her basically being consistently insulted and demeaned because she had a kid. Uh, there's even a scene when she... Oh, I see. It's the parent coming out. Yeah. <laughs> there's a scene where she meets with a family member and kind of goes, this is the situation I'm in. Like, my daughter has been kidnapped and I need your help. And this family member literally tells her... I hope you die. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. Leave right now. I'm not going to help you. You're a whore and you embarrassed our family is basically what he told her. And she goes, I agree. You're right. And that's just where the scene ends. It never goes back to that. There's no payoff for it. And so like that kind of thing kept bugging me because everybody does that shit to her. And after the like third or fourth time, I was like, is the filmmaker just like really shitty about single moms and just like this was his way of saying it? Having said that though, like you're right, the action in the last half is fantastic. There's a great train sequence and there is a, a very goofy but nevertheless entertaining plan that the bad guys use to take the kids off the train, which right. is just like that is total bullshit, but it's okay. I respect you. You did fun. Uh, and this is the the most uh, financially successful Vietnamese film ever made. But that being said, Vietnam has never exactly had a huge film, yeah. film industry. Uh, I really liked it, although I can certainly see some of your complaints. Angry Mama Bear over here has some issues. But <laughs> uh, there's a few behind-the-scene EPKs, short EPKs on here, that are actually kind of interesting. I mean, they're subtitled in English. Uh, uh, this is making the rounds in the martial arts circuits in America and Europe right now is sort of like a, whoa, a Vietnamese martial arts film that's pretty good. Well, it, they shoot the shit out of it. I would really like to see this director tackle a movie where he wasn't basically recreating the Book of Job for his character. <laughs> yeah. You know, just, just like a slightly different setup, and I would be down. This this girl needs a win. Back. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next up, we have High Life, uh, the... French sci-fi horror film written and directed by uh, cult legend Claire. De- I don't know if it's Denis. I assume it's Denis. D e n i s. But there's no uh, I think it's accent Denis. mark. So it's, I like, doubt it's Claire Denis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Although who knows? It's Gal Gadot. So yeah, yeah I guess. Um, so I already saw this in the theater and reviewed it on Highly Suspect Reviews. This is new to Aaron, so I'm gonna let Aaron describe the story. Oh. Um. <laughs> So it was really good to see this because I keep hearing how great an actor Robert Pattinson is, who plays the main character. Yeah. And this is it's the like, first wait, time. The guy from Twilight? Yeah, this is yes, the first time guy. I've seen him outside of Twilight. Oh, you've not seen, uh, uh, what is it, Good Night? Nope, I have not. Oh, dude. I, I know, I know. I, I keep hearing about it. Um, and I'm happy to report that, yes, indeed, Robert Pattinson is an amazing actor, and I can't wait to see him as Batman now. However, so the movie begins with him alone repairing a ship uh, while a child of about a year old is inside. Uh, we don't really get the setup for that. And it spends a long time just showing him going about his life on this ship. Uh, nerd note. It really bugged me at first, the way they depicted space with things dropping away immediately. And there was just black around them, but it, it does make that okay at the end when it explains what's going on. Right. But so, the movie just shows him kind of being a dad. And I admit I immediately glommed onto this because it got a lot of the small things right and the details right on how you act with a child of that age. Um, and then it starts to flash back to what happened before as we see him taking a bunch of dead bodies, putting them in spacesuits, and then dropping them at the airlock. 
Um, and we slowly come to learn that basically in order to resolve the overpopulation issue, humanity locked up any of its undesirables and shipped a lot of them off into space on these uh, generation ships. Yeah, out on a science mission yeah. that is probably a suicide yeah. mission. And, th- like, there's no real headmaster there. There's, well, I mean, there is. There sort of is. A Juliet Benouche, but she is also a criminal. Yeah. So She's like, just a criminal, white-collar criminal. <laughs> she is, and I quote, the only real criminal, uh, as she says. But, um, but yeah, like they, they get sent off on this science mission, really just to get them out of the way. And the crew slowly unravels in, into... Which is, we should say, all in flashbacks. Yeah, all yeah. The, the entire, almost the entire movie is in flashbacks. Um, which is okay. Because they do them well enough that by the time you jump into the bulk of the background material, you forget you're in a flashback for a long time. Right. Um, and, and there's some unique rules, like the women are are treated unfairly. There's a lot of experimentation on birth and space that's going down. So there's discussions of fertility and... Uh, there's this plot line that's kind of weird, but visually gorgeous with basically a sex box that you go into to get off. Yeah, which I'm like, where can I get one of those? But also it's implied <laughs> that it kills you. Uh, over, over time, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Um, you overuse it. And so the the, the, the flashbacks... Which is generally true of our own sex boxes. The flashbacks <laughs> track this crew unraveling. And how you get to that point of him with a kid on his own. Although, unless I completely miss it, it never really explains what happens to all the why everybody died. Yeah, I was a little confused about some of it. Some of it you know. Yeah. Some of it you see. I mean, this film is its very arty. It is. It's, it's very, very meditative. At points, it's three or four different genres of film. There's even three different aspect ratios this film is shot in. Uh-huh. Uh, it's trying to be a lot of things. I'm not entirely clear it works on, on all the levels it wants to, but I've never seen anything like it. Exactly. You know? Well, and, and the, the biggest thing for me is there's a time jump after the flashback where instead of, and this is as far as I'll go and I'm not going to describe any plot, but where it returns back, but instead of going to the present, it jumps to like, 10 years later, <laughs> it took me at least 10 minutes to realize we weren't still in a flashback with a new crew member. Right. Which is basically the main problem why it's confusing yeah. because it's constantly jumping back but, and forth without warning. Like, you've never seen a movie like this visually. It feels like an American independent science fiction film that was shot like a French science fiction film. Yeah. And I loved the look and feel of it, especially when uh, when they finally explained that the reason why you see space the way it is is because they're at ninety nine percent of light speed. Right. And I was like, okay, thank God, it's not just because they didn't have a budget; it's on purpose. I mean, even they they even got the black hole more correct than Interstellar. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow, okay. So like uh, that, I really enjoyed this movie. Like th- this is a movie that I would watch again. It's. I mean, we didn't even mention now, that Andre Benjamin is in this, who we could have used more of, now, personally. I, 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 and I'll, Mia Goth. I'll admit that part of my love of this might have been the fact that I watched this in Oregon, where recreational cannabis is a thing. Oh, uh, oh, oh this is 
definitely a movie to be high to. Yeah. Like, decidedly a stoned movie. Yeah, take some mushrooms and watch this. Like, that's the kind of movie this is. I mean, assuming you like stuff with horror themes in it and disturbing stuff. I mean, if you're one of those people who's like... Super sensitive, hippy dippy. Then no, this is not. This is not two thousand one or something. This is no, well, like it, it, a lot it's, darker. It's two thousand one. If they threw in some very R rated exploitationy sexual themes in there, there is a rape some sequence violence, in here yeah. that is intense as fuck. Yeah, and agreed. the first time you see the the sex box. It's so weird and out of place that it's. I, I was. I watched that part with my wife, and like we both kind of turned to each other. We're like, "What is happening now?" I could have sworn they used to sell that at Sharper Image. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always like, "Ooh, I'm putting that on my Amazon wish list." But but yeah, like if you're into that kind of trippy, weird, very much a drug friendly movie, this is awesome. There's a uh, 19 minute audacious, passionate and dangerous making high life uh, extra feature featurette with lots of behind the scenes footage is visualizing the abyss, the look of high life for 11 minutes, 15 seconds, which are interviews and scenes that take a close look at the production design of the film trailers. And which is very rare for an indie film like this, it comes with a digital copy, which is kind of yep. nice. Because usually, like, indie films almost never come with digital copies. And I, I have a digital library that I, like, that I keep. I mean, I use Vudu. I'm like, it's so convenient. My wife loves it. Because she'll have those days at work where she's just entering data for hours until, like, late at night. And I'll be like, fuck, I just need, I need to have something in the background yep. playing. So she loves that we've got like 9,000 fucking digital movies she can choose from in TV shows. Same here. Uh, anyway, the last movie we're going to talk about today is the one that Aaron's going to say fuck you, Chris, for, uh, for the second time on this show. And that is <laughs> Pet Cemetery. Despite the fact that I will defend this film as being nowhere near as bad as some people are saying. And in fact, I dug it a lot more than the original Pet Cemetery film. I still am just kind of mixed on it. So I agree. Also, Chris, fuck you. <laughs> um, so fun fact, when about, I think six or seven months ago when they were, this was coming out in theaters, I distinctly remember being in this room. You were handing me a stack and you were apologizing for some shit movie you were giving me that was like terrible and just bad and boring and violent. And I remember going, look, it's okay. Just promise me one thing. I won't hand you. You will never hand me Pet Cemetery because it has kid death in it. I'm aware of this. Nothing wrong with that. I just can't watch it because I got kids. Don't you dare show me Pet Cemetery, you motherfucker. (laughs) Well, to Aaron's credit, as a real trooper, he watched Pet Cemetery. Yes. And the 4K version. So the kid death is just in your face and looks as real as day. When you see that kid just like explode all over the highway, you're just like every tiny (laughs) bit of their brain. Well, (laughs) when we were recording our last episode, Chris was like, Aaron, it's okay. Like, I'm not going to say what he said because it'll spoil something. But I was like, like, it's okay. Your kid is X, right? Because like, it's not who you think is going to die. I was like, no, 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 I, I have this. And Chris just sat there silently. I was like, oh. Sorry. <laughs> In that case, but, I'm sorry. I mean, look, so let's, let's jump into this. Let's get this sure, over. Cause, sure. cause honestly, the, I, I don't hate this. Um, I do think it is a fair sight better than the original. Um, oh, yeah. which I don't really think is a great movie. I, I don't actually, either. 
I, oddly, it's, it's got old, it's got a weirdly a super cult following I have around more it. Affection for Pet Cemetery Two. I've never the, seen that. It's terrible, but I saw it first. Uh, cool death, uh, at least. But um, so basically, the main the characters is a family who they move into the country to get away from the hustle and bustle of the city. The dad is a doctor and he can't handle death and destruction anymore. So they move into wherever the hell this movie takes place. Um, him <laughs> Somewhere and, in Maine, presumably. Yeah. <laughs> him, his son, his daughter, and yeah, his wife. Ludlow, Maine. Who is, his wife who is dealing with the death of her sister 30 years prior. And, and let um, me just say, uh, the father is Jason Clark, played by Jason Clark. The mother is played by Amy uh, Simons. Who is probably better known for her TV shows, but yeah. anyone who's a fan of that god awful fucking upstream color movie, you know her from there. There you go. Yeah. Uh, and John Lufkow. Lufkow. Yeah. Playing Judd. Yeah. Judd. And well, let me you start off the, the bat you know by the saying, like, sometimes dad is better. The, the actors all do a good job. The movie is actually really gorgeous. Um, but, sorry, I'm. I'm Jumping aside from the plot. So they show up at the house. We establish that with this giant smoking gun imagery, trucks drive past here at Mach 2 all the time. Yay, scary horn. Something bad's going to happen. We know it. Yeah. And lots of scenes of scene, uh, of like the, the jump scare being a truck yeah. being loudly driving by all the time. Uh, and we find out that there is a pet cemetery, misspelled on purpose, uh, on their property that the kids go bury their pets at with creepy masks on and there is a giant growth back there a mountain of bones and garbage and dirt well not bones it's all there broken were bones trees in there there were bones in I there i think it was just supposed to look like that okay. it was definitely just old it's basically like where they shoveled aside like like broken ass dead trees and shit until yeah. it became like a, like 20 feet high so long story short before long, the cat gets killed. Yeah. And John Lithgow That was said, the part for me. I was like, fuck you, movie. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, John Lithgow goes, hey, you love your daughter. You don't want to have to have a tough conversation, which, yes, folks, this entire movie happens because white people can't talk about death with their kids. Yeah. Um, so he takes him up beyond the bone tree berg and into... Basically, the thinny from uh, the mist. There's creepy lightning and shit happening everywhere. Yeah. I swear it's in There's another a, dimension. A path for miles. That's yeah. like the fucking um, in the insidious movies when you're there in the yeah, fucking the further, dream, the further, but in the woods and, and, and like, you're like goes for miles which, up until you go to the top of like a, a minor mountain and you're which like, Jesus Christ. Both- Partly, I really respected the fact that they went hard into the idea that there is something out there that is dark and nasty and weaving its way into other parts of your life. But come on, man. At a certain point, you go, I'm just going to bury the cat here. Yeah. <laughs> but um, buries the cat. It comes back to life and it comes back wrong. Yeah. Um, it's, it's pissed off. Which leads me to my favorite conversation when John Lithgow admits this to him and goes, yeah, when I was a kid, my dog died and we buried it there and it came back to life and tried to kill us because it came back wrong. Yeah. And some things. I forgot are, to mention that. Yeah. Detail. And like it took 
everything in my power to be like, why the hell wouldn't you just go, now you fucking tell me? And that's the same same flaw in the original, same flaw in the book. I've always been like, it baffles me why people like this story so much. Because that's such a huge fucking flaw. And Jason Clark's character and the character in the last one, they never even get mad at him yeah. about it. You're just like, you knew that this shit could go this terribly wrong and you just thought it was worth skipping over? But, <laughs> so, before and long... Out, even then, later, he's like, oh yeah, and then there were other people who did the thing with humans and that turned out really yeah. bad. And you're like, oh, for fuck's sake. So, about halfway into the movie, <laughs> the inciting incident happens, which is... One of the kids dies in a car wreck. Side note, in a car wreck that would have just jellied them. But, so the dad can't handle it. He goes and he buries his kid in the pet cemetery. They come back and trouble ensues. Yeah. Because, of course, they come back wrong. Yeah. Like, we know the plot. It's a remake. Well, here's the thing. The original one is just so low-budget feeling. It feels like nobody really gave a shit. The only thing about the whole first movie that I'd say is still worth it is the guy playing uh, Judd is much better than John Lithgow, who is just not a, who is definitely not as good an actor as John Lithgow, but Lithgow looks like he could give a shit in yeah. this performance. He's just not putting anything into it at well, all. He, he's doing and, and the original guy's got this heavy main accent. I'm blanking on his name right now, but like, uh, uh, like, uh, it's a guy who played Herman Munster. Yeah, uh, I don't know his um, name. Uh, Fred Gwynn. And he's like that whole, sometimes dad is better versus John Lithgow. You know, sometimes dad is better. You're like, well, yeah, I mean, there's something that fits the campiness of the original with that heavy main accent, but he's so much more memorable. And the other thing about the original is the stuff with the, that, that absolutely serves no purpose in the storyline other than the, to give the wife something to do and to have additional creepy stuff for long periods that otherwise would have nothing creepy going on in a horror movie is the whole thing with her sister where they got actually, it's actually a guy playing her sister in the original even though the makeup is more convincing and everything here, there's something entirely more creepy about the, that sister in the original film well, than there is here. The, what I ended up having a problem with is, you're right, it goes nowhere. And it's a cool idea. Like, the, the earlier on, there's a, a guy who gets killed in a car crash who, for a split second, comes back. Right. Um, well, not and, even a split second. He keeps yeah, coming back. Yeah. But So, like, there's this idea that weaving through the world and... It would have been cool if they did something with that. And I can see in the book that being a cool component that is a lot more prominent. In the movie, it felt like it just doesn't pay off. And, and which ultimately was my biggest problem with this movie. Once you get to the end of the movie and everything plays out, we're done. It's just kind of like, well, okay, all of that happened. See, I, I here's what I'll say. I thought the first half was really dull and largely just doing... What the first movie did, except with Jason Clark, who I'm personally just not a fan of as an actor. I enjoyed him. I don't Although, he sounds like Nathan Fillion. It's, I never realized it till this movie. He has that... But he sounds just like There's something about Fillion. his face that always makes it seem like he just got Botoxed. <laughs> like, he, you can hear the words coming out of his mouth have actual expressions. And what he's doing with the rest of his body is very well done. But his face just doesn't move. Uh, like, okay, I just, I find you extremely uncharismatic and unappealing as an actor. My personal opinion, I don't know why he keeps getting cast in, in A-list shit, but 
There you go. I think there's a lot more interesting visually going on here, and I think that's partially due to the directors here, uh, Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Widmeyer, which did the considerably better indie horror film Starry Eyes, which if you've not seen is not. really worth checking out, and it's just gorgeously shot. But definitely much more of a visual eye. But ultimately, the whole first half of this movie, even first two-thirds, is largely exactly the plot it, of the original. It's not till like, we finally get to the kid death. It is an hour in. Yeah. I, I looked. I was like, when is this? It's not till we finally get to that that things start to take a different turn and do some decidedly different stuff from the book and the movie that I started to peek up a little bit and go, okay, there's some interesting new choices here that at the very least I, I can say is, well, at least I'm not watching the same goddamn movie. You know, they're doing different things, and I appreciated that. I, in fact, found some of those different things considerably creepier than the original choices, yeah. especially the very ending I thought was super creepy, uh, which I was like, wow, that, that was cool. I mean, it's like technically this whole thing works, but the source material has always been deeply flawed. Well, like I said, I'm just baffled so, by all the people who think that Pet Cemetery is one of his best books. Well, the problem is that is the book is Stephen King dealing with the idea of losing his children. Yeah. And so on an emotional level, I can see that really resounding, resonating with people reading a book and getting the emotion of the characters. That does not necessarily translate to a good movie, though. True. Like, for a movie, it's structured weird. Uh, the You're right. When stuff starts going wrong after kid death, that was actually kind of fun and interesting. Should have happened about 20 minutes earlier in the movie, at least. You know, but I can see this being a good book. I've never read it, and I'm never going to, because yeah. kid death, but... If you have had no exposure to Pet Cemetery and you're like, I'm not going to read the book, and you had to choose one movie, this is the one I would decidedly choose. I would watch. agree. I mean, I think that, like, as a translation, it's by far the better of the two translations. But it's still just not that great of a story to begin yeah. with. I mean, I know you guys are going to get mad. Fuck you, Pet Cemetery is great. Okay. Different things affect different people, but I think this whole thing is from the get-go is loaded with like, wait a minute, what moments that are inherent in the original story? Uh, the bonus features here, and this is a 4K, which looks terrific, because like I said, this is shot really well, and, and it comes out. Lots of deep, dark blacks that really, like, fucking resonate. Uh, there's a nine-minute alternate ending, which largely is not really the ending is alternate, so much as the whole lead-up to the ending is slightly different. There's a lot more... Fighting, basically, is what it comes down to. Uh, there is uh, several deleted and extended scenes that actually I thought were well worth watching. I was like, okay, some of these add some interesting aspects to this. There's Night Terrors, uh, which are a, a series of deleted scenes, basically, where all, each of the three primary characters has a nightmare uh, and about their greatest fears. Which adds nothing to it, really. Yeah. I can totally see why they cut out cut it out. There's the tale of Timmy Baderman, which is Judd Crandall telling the tale of the boy who was killed in the war and resurrected the Micmac burying ground that was cut out of this. Another deleted scene. I don't know why they gave them their own separate sequences like this. <laughs> uh, there's a four part feature called Beyond the Deadfall, which is you know each one is you know hovering around 15 minutes. And I mean, it was all right. I actually watched all of them. Um, there's certainly, it goes a little bit beyond your normal EPK stuff that people actually 
like it's not quite as slick as your usual like everybody just complimenting each other type thing and it gets into a lot of the details of how they did like the effects for things so I was like okay there's a lot about the kitties <laughs> there's like four kitties that play the cat and they're so cute there's a whole sequence just about the kitties and they're like oh they're so cute did that make you happy Chris it did I was happy I was like, it saves the whole movie anyway like I said, it's a mixed bag. All right, it's time for the announcement. What is our pick of the week? I know what mine is. I know what mine is, too, actually. All right, you say it. Hedwig and the Angry Yeah, you're goddamn right, Hedwig <laughs> and the Angry Inch. You guys, buy that shit. Anyway, this has been Digital Noise. I'm Chris. That's Aaron. Thank you for listening. We'll be back very shortly with John Golson, who is back from his weird vacation he took cross-country, which he'll get to tell you about some of that. He went to the Flintstones theme park. Yes, there is a yeah, Flintstones theme that's park. that's right. It's closing down, but that's, I think, the reason they went on their vacation was to see the closing down Flintstones theme park, because God love him, he's an oddball. There you go. <laughs>